Sorry, I didn't change. <laughs> um, it's good to be back. It's good to see your faces. Oh, beautiful children up front. Very nice. Very nice service. Um, you remember Lois? You know, she's up here playing. She wrote a letter. So before I speak, I'd like to read the letter she wrote to the congregation here. She's in uh, Miamisburg. She's, uh, you know, she's in her mid-80s. She's going to be closer to family. She knew it would be a little tougher to drive to church in the coming years and just felt a lot of peace. God opened doors for her there. But, you know, God allowed her to bless us here. And she really was a blessing um, to see someone come back to church at that age. You know, uh, she had been a member at Worthington, and it's, at some point had left the church, got married, and, and uh, I'll never forget the day when I pulled up in the church parking lot and I saw Lois. I'd never seen her before. This was her first time back to church. And God led her here, and I just remember meeting her and talking to her right out in the church parking lot. And, you know, it's been a, a blessing to study with her, even to this day. We keep studying on the phone and so forth. Um, but she has a brilliant mind. God has blessed her, not just in music, but just to understand the Word in a very deep way. She's, she's, a, she's truly a blessing. Um, let me just read the... Um, she says to, uh, to the Brooklyn Church family, My heart overflows with thankfulness for your kindness, generosity, thoughtfulness, and love. Our fellowship meal last Sabbath was a beautiful expression of all the above. I wish to thank everyone who planned it, on all those who prepared the delicious, healthful food, and the cake with its purple floral frosting was a delight. As you remember, she always wore violet or purple or something. It was a lovely occasion to be together. I am abundantly blessed to belong to the Brooklyn Church Church family. It has been a great joy to participate in our music and to hear you sing the hymns that I have loved for many years. My deepest thanks to Pastor and Lena Weir, the elders, and each one of you for the welcome I received when I returned to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and for your friendship and support along the way. There is sadness in parting. I shall miss you all, but let's stay in touch. I have included my new address. I will keep you in my thoughts and prayers, and, and when you can, come and visit. May the good Lord bless and keep you till we meet again. We love with love and heartfelt thanks, and a special thank you for the lovely card signed with your beautiful messages, Lois. So I think Kim will probably put her address in the bulletin for a while, but we'll definitely put it in the back. And it would be great to, to uh, keep in touch with her. Okay. Well... We're going to study. Last time I was here, I talked on the sanctuary. I want to continue on that from a little more maybe practical viewpoint. Um, maybe you remember years, well, maybe a year ago, I talked about the seed principle. I don't know if you remember that. They say you only remember 80% of the sermon 72 hours later, so I'm not expecting you to remember. But... The seed principle is that everything in our world comes from a seed. Is that right? Every tree. And that, all those trees out there started as just a little seed. 
And everything these trees are right now was actually in that seed. You and I come from a seed. You know, there is the law of heredity and so forth. And so I want to kind of combine the thought of the sanctuary and the seed principle together because I think it is taught there. And it is an important lesson for us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the lessons that the sanctuary can bring, teaching us how, how much you want to dwell on us. And the dwellness so that we can grow like these beautiful trees next to us. We want to continue to grow and to become like your son, Jesus Christ. We know that's the good news. That any one of us, no matter what we've done or how many times, we can live a new life. And that new life can grow on us each day. And so, Father, to this end, we want to leave this sermon in your hands and our service for you to be honored and uplifted. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title, The Sanctuary and the Seed, Growing in Christ. And this is a familiar verse. It's uh, the first time that I think the word sanctuary is used in the Bible. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And the Hebrew actually supports the idea that God wants to dwell in us. And the reason why in that Old Testament sanctuary... God's presence was there, right? His Shekinah glory was not just so they can see God in a sanctuary in the middle of their encampment, but to teach them that he wanted to what? Dwell in them. That was the lesson. To sit, to think that God only wanted sacrifices and God was in the most holy place, but not in me would be missing the whole point of the sanctuary. The whole point of the sanctuary is to teach that that same God whose very presence is in the most holy place, can actually be in me. And of course, Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. We are going to look at a statement in the spirit of prophecy that the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is the same as Christ dwelling in us. I mean, we are talking about three distinct persons. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit to impart the life of Jesus. So it's Jesus taking up residence in our heart. We'll look at that in a little bit here. So the sanctuary is designed to teach us how God can dwell in us. Now, remember in the sanctuary, God re- God's character is revealed. Not only revealed in that it, it was all kind of made of gold, and gold represents character, right? And uh, But it's those Ten Commandments were found in the most holy place which is a description of the character of God. Now, if God's presence wasn't in the sanctuary, but the Ten Commandments were, I could look at the sanctuary and I could look at myself and say what? I'll never be able to keep this. How am I going to achieve this? God's sanctuary is being actually described in the sanctuary... But the lesson is, is that if he's not in there or in me, I'll never have his character. Is that right? I could never make of myself a likeness to God. It would only be because he would be in my heart and in my life and Christ growing and growing. And day by day, we become more like him in thoughts and feelings, in character. So the sanctuary is going to teach us how God can dwell in us, and we can grow and become like him. Now, before God had them build a sanctuary, 
he gave them this wonderful, great object lesson. And before they could build a sanctuary out in the wilderness, they had to be freed from Egyptian bondage, right? Of the several million Hebrews enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, were they able to deliver themselves? No, any possibility of delivering themselves. There wasn't. The Egyptians were the superpower of the ancient world, right? And so there was no possibility they could, but God would give them an experience to show that even though they possessed no power in themselves, they could still be delivered from the greatest enemy facing them, right? By his power. And so they experienced this deliverance, and of these millions of Hebrews, not one, not a child, not an older person, died. Millions leave Egypt, and not one falls, because God is able to deliver us to the uttermost, okay? To the uttermost, and so every Hebrew is freed. Now, this same power that God demonstrated in delivering them from Egypt is the same power that actually exists in the heavenly sanctuary from where we get our power, okay? Notice how wonderful the heavenly sanctuary is. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the true sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. What do we know about man? What do we know about all those earthly priests? Are any of them alive? No. Were any of them able to give power to people? And where are those earthly sanctuaries? Where are they now? They're destroyed. You see, this is the heavenly. This is one in which Christ is able to ever intercede for us. He doesn't start something and fail or die and can't continue. No, he's always interceding for us. Wherefore, he's able also to save them to the uttermost. And we want to look at that word, to the uttermost. It's in the Greek, pantalis, And come unto him by God, by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So to be saved to the uttermost is to be saved completely. That's what this word means. And I want to show you a verse in the New Testament where this same phrase, pentelis, is used. Look at this phrase here, found in Luke chapter 13. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bowed together and could in no wise lift herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, called her to him and said to her, Woman, thou art loose from thy infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. This woman was bent over and had no way to fix her back. She was completely like this with no hope of ever straightening up. And that's where this phrase, Aistopantelis, is that she was in no ways, in no ways, no way, could she ever be healed from this? She was completely in infirmity. But what does God do? He speaks the word, he anoints her, and something that is completely impossible happens. So no matter how we've lived our lives, if Jesus, Aisto Pantelis, is in me, 
Does that mean I can be healed of anything? Absolutely. And we look at ourselves as completely unable to heal ourselves, which is true. But not so to him who can save us to the uttermost. He's able to make people complete who, can't, who are completely helpless. That's a beautiful work that Jesus is doing. So Jesus can take any one of us, completely destroyed by the things that we're endangered to or enslaved to, and free us and make us whole. This is what it's all about. This is what the whole gospel is about. Okay? Now notice this verse. There's two things here I want us to notice. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by what? By his death, the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Those are two different things. Sin had separated me from God. And what reconciles me back to God is the death of Jesus Christ. But what saves me, because I'm not saved if Jesus dies and doesn't live again. My faith is in vain. I am now able to be reconciled to God. Those sins no longer separate me from God by accepting what Jesus did for me in the death of the cross. But I've got to remember there's another part here, isn't there? I've got to be saved by his life. So when I accept Christ as my personal Savior, I'm reconciled to God, but now I need to realize that I need to be saved by his life. Where does his life need to be? In here. Because this is what prepares me for heaven. And in a lot of churches, the focus is on the cross, and that's beautiful. But there's also got to be a focus on a Jesus who lives who's able to save us to the uttermost, that no matter how we are completely unable to heal ourselves, he's completely able to do it if he is in me. His life is in me. And so when we start thinking about the seed principle, we start thinking, well, how am I saved by his life? And what happens is the Holy Spirit takes the life of Jesus and he plants it in my heart. Is that right? And now Jesus is in me. His life is in me. How much of Jesus' life is in me? Okay, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. All the life. That seed principle. That tree out there was a seed, and in that seed was the whole life of that tree. And the seed of a tomato plant, the whole life of that seed. When it first begins to germinate and then starts producing fruit, the whole life is in there. This is powerful because if Jesus is in your heart, how much power do you have to have a changed life? All the power of heaven, my friends. To have a whole new life because the seed of Jesus is in you. So we're going to talk a little bit about the sanctuary. We're going to first look at the courtyard here, which is where I will liken it to this is when you come to Jesus. You accept Jesus as your personal Savior. You're now reconciled to God. And this is when the Holy Spirit plants the seed of Jesus in your life. And then the holy place, the rest of the sanctuary service, 
is really about how the Jesus in you can grow. You see, we don't have health reform and dress reform, all these reforms, to earn anything. The only purpose for these reforms is so that the Jesus in you can grow. In fact, every doctrine you believe when you join the church could not have possibly been simply to be a member of this church. Everything you believe that comes from the Bible is first and foremost to help the Jesus in you grow. This is why you want to study the Bible. This is why you want to embrace truth. Because if you throw the truth away, what happens to the seed of Jesus in you? It's like you you allowed it to be in a drought. And the ground is dry. We had a pretty dry summer. Dry, dry, dry. And when it's dry, all those minerals in the soil cannot be absorbed by the roots unless it's suspended in some sort of solution to be absorbed and grow. So when we reject light and truth, it's like we just parch the plant of Jesus in us, and it can't grow. But this is why we embrace truth. This is why we're searchers for truth. Because the more truth I have, the more Jesus can develop in me. Right? This has to be the motive for everything we do. So we're going to look at, I think we're going to first look at the altar of incense, and then we'll look at the showbread, and then the the candlestick. So let's back to the courtyard. This is where we confess our sins. If we go back to the courtyard, we confess our sins here. So, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that a true statement? If I ask God to forgive me for this, will he forgive me? Does he keep his promise? Of all the personalities in the universe, who can you trust the most? You can trust God. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. The reason I put that verse in there is when you come and you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, your name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Until you accept Jesus, your name's not in that book of life. But when you accept Jesus and you enter into his service, your name's written in the book. And when you confess those sins, he pardons you. He forgives you. So beside every confessed sin is the word pardon. This is all in a ledger in heaven. It's real. It's a real book. And your name was actually written there. And the word forgiven or pardon is written by those confessed sins. This is all very real. But there's something else that's very real. Romans 4, 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. So before you do any works of righteousness, not works to earn anything, but you're working out your faith, you're working out that new life in you, is producing good works and good words like unto Jesus. And before you can start any of that, the life of Jesus has already been imputed to you. Now the word imputed is like the word credit. So at the age of 20, I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. My name was written in the book of life. 
Beside those sins I confess is the word pardon, but God wrote something else in that ledger. He wrote the life of Jesus, sinless life, to my account. Okay? Before I even had a chance to do anything good. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves, is there something more to Jesus' life being written in a ledger in heaven? Where does God ultimately want to write the life of Jesus? Ah, isn't that right? This isn't some ledger accounting we're talking about here. It's real, that is true. But the correspondence of that is to write that same life in here. And that life is in that seed of Jesus, right? And if God, if I accept Jesus as my personal Savior, and that seed of Jesus is planted in me, then the whole life of Jesus that's been written in that ledger is in that seed, and now it's in, it's in me. And my work now is to what? Let it grow. Stop doing the things that keeps Jesus from growing inside of you. Start doing all the things that allows Jesus to grow in you. This is our motive. This is what the sanctuary ultimately teaches. This is what all this furniture really ultimately represents in the sanctuary. Notice this beautiful statement. By faith, he, the sinner who has so grievously wronged and offended God, can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord places the obedience of his Son to the sinner's what? His account. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure. So before I came to Christ, I had a life story. What did that life story look like? Sinner, sinner, sinner. When I give my sins to Jesus, God now looks at me as if I never, I never sin. That sinful life is swept away, in a way, and Christ's life is now in that ledger. And so when God looks at me, he sees his son, I'm forgiven as if I'd never sinned. But it's more than an accounting. It's real. The life of Jesus is actually in you. And this is why we as Seventh-day Adventists have been called. Because with all the reforms God has given us, with all the truths, it was to produce us as a people that hadn't existed for 2,000 years. The early church, Stephen, that we just did in our Sabbath school class for the youth, was all of all the deacons the most like Jesus. He allowed the Jesus in him to grow. And they took his life. Imagine that. What a wicked world. Christ's life is more than credited to our account in the book of heaven. It's more than words in a ledger. The Holy Spirit plants the life of Jesus in us. How much of Jesus? All of Jesus. And we understand all this based on the seed principle that I now, having accepted Christ, have the potential, because his seed is in me, to reflect his image perfectly. That potential's there, isn't it? And that's what God's waiting for, is a people who reflect the image of Jesus perfectly. 
And Paul would say this, Wherefore I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery amongst the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, for many in the early church, especially with those of the Hebrew background, it was like, how is this happening? How do these Gentiles, having never had a Bible, never having given a, a sacrifice to the temple or anything, how is it that they are now manifesting everything that actually is in the law? Right? It's a mystery. How do these people who were not of God's people demonstrate that they really have the Spirit of God in them? And that's because the seed of Jesus is real. Jesus was planted in their hearts and they cooperated to have Jesus' life just grow through them. And it was an evidence of this miracle, this absolute miracle taking place. Paul would say this, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but what? It's Christ who's actually living in me. And this is how I'm, this is how my life's being changed. It's not me making myself better. There's something happened to me. And what happened was something was planted in my heart. You see, part of our problem is we're born of the seed of Adam. We're all born of the seed of Adam. But once Adam and Eve sinned, the only inheritance they could give to us was an inheritance of sin and death. Right? A fallen nature. And if you and I are only born of the seed of Adam, we're going to die in our sins and there'll be no hope of eternal life. In fact, if Jesus doesn't become the promised seed, what happens to the human race? It becomes extinct. Because in the seed of Adam, what we inherit from Adam is death. But if Jesus, the new seed, is planted in me, in his seed is what? Is life. Eternal life. And this is why the seed of Jesus needs to be in us. And that's that new birth experience. So there are two theologies. We talk about new theology and we talk about biblical theology. We can just say it this way. Christ in you and the recreation of man in the, in the image of God is true theology. That's really ultimately what the gospel is about. It's about Christ being formed within you. Now there is another gospel out there that says just believing in Jesus, but actually denying the Jesus in you. And that can be easily done by not focusing on the idea that we need to grow in Christ. Yes, I'm reconciled to God by his death, but i got to be saved by his life in me and me being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In the end of time, we're going to face this kind of Christianity. Believe in Jesus, but also believe in combining church and state. And they think that's the truth. But in demonstrating this spirit... They're going to say, you can't buy and sell. Well, is that like Jesus? If Jesus is in me, would I ever take a position that you can't buy and sell food because you don't believe like me? You see, the Jesus in me would never have that kind of thought. But we have a Christianity that's moving very, very far from the life of Jesus. 
in many ways in Christianity today. We've got a Christianity that's moving so far in such progressive ideas that it doesn't adhere to the principles of the Bible. And we have a Christianity that's so politically charged that it's very far from Jesus too, just as far away. And the only safe place to be is say, you know, I'm not really interested in CNN or Fox anyway. I'm just interested in God's word. And what can I do and think that will help Jesus grow in me? Because you know, friends, I don't know that there's a lot of time left. And every decision we need to make has to do with helping that Jesus in us to grow. So let's think about, in Mary, how it physically happened. And the angel answered and said unto her, Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So here's an illustration of the Holy Spirit actually taking Jesus and placing it in the womb of Mary as an embryo. And what happened? Jesus began to grow in her. Isn't that right? Gave birth, Jesus grows as a man, because in that seed is the whole life of Jesus. Can the Holy Spirit do the same thing with us? Yeah, we're not going to all become pregnant, but we're all going to have Jesus in us, growing in us in the same way. That's the whole purpose of the gospel, the good news. So let's um, think about Jesus, the impartation of the life of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the breath of spiritual life in the soul. The impartation of the Spirit is the impartation of the life of Christ. The Spirit imbues the receiver with the attributes of Christ. So when we as a church pray for the Holy Spirit, 777, seven days a week, seven in the morning, seven in, in the evening, ultimately when we're praying for the Holy Spirit as a worldwide church, what are we ultimately really praying for? For the Spirit to fill us with what? The life of Jesus. And this is where we got to be careful as a church. If I'm not praying, for, if I'm praying for the Holy Spirit, but I'm not praying to be more like Jesus, is there a problem there? I could wind up with a different spirit, friends. The impartation of the Holy Spirit is the impartation of life of Christ. The Holy Spirit understands that without Jesus, we have nothing. You can have all the right doctrines, get all the right answers at Sabbath school, but if you don't have Jesus growing in you, because isn't that ultimately what the judgment's about? Every person whose name comes up in the investigative judgment has their names written in the book of life, right? So what's God going to look at in that book of life? Your name's there. Christ's life credited to you is there. The word forgiven but what's he going to need to look at? What is the only thing he needs to look at? How did you live your life when you had all this potential to be like Jesus? What kind of decisions did you make to allow Jesus to grow in you? You see what I'm saying? That if day by day, and we're going to get into this, we haven't got into it, but if I pray and I study and I witness and I do the things that God wants me to do, where I'm creating this beautiful garden spot for Jesus to grow in me, is that evidence that God can entrust me with eternal life? Absolutely. But if I accept Jesus, but I just go back and I live the old life, and there's no growth of Jesus being like me 
or me being like Jesus, then he, Jesus could say, look, yeah, you, you prophesied in my name, you did this in my name, but I never knew you didn't let me grow in you. You didn't become like me, yet you had all the potential to be like me. But you chose to do things that starve the seed instead of bring nutrients to the plant. See? And our whole life will demonstrate one or the other. And so what becomes important, like the thief on the cross, isn't how long you've had Jesus in your heart. It's how long have you cooperated with the Holy Spirit to let Jesus grow in your heart. Is that right? And the slide's coming up, but I'll say it now. When you sin, that doesn't mean Jesus is a seed's not in you anymore. When you sin and choose to sin, what are you doing? You're kind of driving the Holy Spirit away. But the Holy Spirit, as we'll see coming up, is the rain that moistens the ground, do you see? Because in the judgment, every believer's name comes up. And it's only that judgment when it's been determined that you didn't choose to be like Jesus, but you believed in Jesus, but you didn't choose to be like Jesus. That our names are blotted out instead of our sins. So that means Jesus is still in you. Even if you've not made decisions in favor of being like him, he's still in you. You've just kind of chased away the Holy Spirit from doing his work to allow that Jesus in you to grow. Does that make sense? So all that we're really talking about is, yes, we need the seed of Jesus. We need to learn to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to allow the Jesus in us to grow. Christ has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, and the promise belongs to us as much as to the first disciples. But like every other promise, it is given on conditions. There are many who believe and profess to claim the Lord's promise. They talk about Christ and the Holy Spirit, yet receive no benefit. They do not surrender the soul to be guided and controlled by divine agencies. We cannot use the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's to use us. Through the Spirit of God, through the Spirit, God works and his people, to will and to do of his good pleasure. But many will not submit to this. They want to manage themselves. This is why they do not receive the heavenly gift. So what happens, and Paul would even bring this up. He says, okay, you're going to start with faith and being forgiven, and now it's all up to you to manage your life to be like Jesus. He says, it doesn't work that way. Can you think of any good story in the Bible where man chose to do his own way and it turned out good? Abraham and Sarah, they had a plan, you know. Somehow for fallen human human beings to have a plan that goes counter to God's divine plan just doesn't work out. And yet this is one of the hardest things we will ever learn. Because part of our fallen nature is to always want to be in control. That doesn't mean that you become irresponsible. What it does mean is for us to learn to trust God. For God to lead us. But that's expressed by much prayer and study because you believe in praying and studying God speaking to you. But if I don't pray and study, that's more like me taking manage of my own life and not trusting God. Does that make sense? So what we want to do is we want to practice all these things in the sanctuary, which is a demonstration of our faith in God and not trust in ourselves. We know God is able to manage 
our lives and lead us in the right direction. We just need to learn to know how to do that. Okay? So here's a, here's a statement about the Holy Spirit's the rain, but Jesus is the seed. As the dew and the rain are given first to cause the seed to germinate and then to ripen the harvest, so the Holy Spirit is given to carry forward from one stage to another the process of spiritual growth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the moral image of God is being perfected in the character. We're to be wholly transformed into the likeness of Christ. So Christ is a seed. It's his character planted in the heart, and it's the job of the Holy Spirit to water the seed to allow it to grow. Okay? And it's the work of a lifetime. So, the seed and the judgment... um, We already talked about that, so let's go here real quickly, and we'll look at these three pieces of furniture quickly, and then we'll close. The altar of incense and prayer. Notice what this says. Perseverance in prayer has been made a condition of receiving. We must pray always if we would what? Grow in faith and experience. We're to be instant in prayer, to continue in prayer, and watch in the same with thanksgiving. So Jesus has been planted in my heart, but every day I need to pray because it's the only way I receive the benefits for Jesus to grow in me. Little prayer, little growth. Much prayer, much growth. Make sense? Next statement. Unceasing prayer is the unbroken union of the soul with God so that life from God flows into our life. And from our life, purity and holiness flow back to God. So all goodness comes from, and the work of the Holy Spirit is to allow all the goodness of God to flow into us, and for us to basically, and there will be a statement here, we need to just get the obstacles out of the way. We can't make ourselves good, but we can receive his goodness. But if I'm not receiving its goodness, it's because I've probably allowed an obstacle to stand in the way. Does that make sense? So we can just pray every day, Father, is there any more obstacles in my life? Is there something in my life that keeps me from allowing Jesus to grow in me? Is that a fair prayer? That's an important prayer. I believe those who are striving to be amongst the 144,000 are praying that prayer every day. Is there something else, Lord? I know I haven't arrived. What else is there? And the Holy Spirit's not going to show all our faults at once. We become too overwhelmed and depressed. But he'll show us one at a time because he's that perfect teacher, right? Notice if we neglect to pray. The darkness of the evil one encloses those who neglect to pray. Without unceasing prayer and diligent watching, we are in danger of growing careless and of deviating from the right path. Much prayer, much like Jesus. Little prayer, there's a risk, isn't there? Because if I don't pray much, what am I likely going to do? Start meandering on wrong paths. Isn't that right? And so, the next statement, those who neglect to pray lack a sense of their need of God's power and presence. This can only result in self-sufficiency and the substitution of human plans for the divine. That makes perfect sense to me. That the less I pray, the more I'm 
relying on human plans. And I've never seen a human plan work in the Bible. But if I pray, I'm expressing my lack of faith in myself and my trust in God who will guide me. And ultimately, I only have to worry about today. I have no promise of tomorrow. If I start worrying about all the things tomorrow, i just stolen all my opportunities for today. If I keep kicking myself about yesterday, what can I do today? If I kick myself about yesterday and I'm worried all about the future, what good am I going to do today? I've taken away most of my opportunities to grow in grace. But if I ask God to forgive me of my past, and I accept his forgiveness, I believe in it, and I trust my future to him. That doesn't mean you don't have plans and things like that. You know, Those are good. gets the mind working. But at the same time, I need to focus on being the best follower of Jesus today. Doing everything I need to do today for Jesus to grow because I'll be more like him tomorrow. And then I can grow step by step. Does that make sense? The table of showbread. Each Sabbath, a fresh supply of 12 loaves of bread were laid out on the table, arranged in two rows, each containing six loaves. It was called showbread, or the bread of presence, because it was ever before the face of the Lord, meaning the Father. It was an acknowledgement of man's dependence upon God for both temporal and spiritual food, Both the manna and the showbread pointed to Christ, the living bread, who's ever in the presence of God for us. Jesus is the living bread in the presence of his Father, and we are to partake of the bread of life every day. And how would we do that? What's one answer? Study the Bible, right? The reason why the youth and even those of mature years are so easily led into temptation and sin is that they do not study the word of God and meditate upon it as they should. The lack of firm, decided willpower which is manifest in the life and character results from the neglect of the sacred instructions of God's word. So if I pray much, I grow much. If I study much, I'm going to grow much, right? But if I pray little, study little, I'm not doing everything I can to allow the Jesus that's already in me to grow. And this is why we need to find a time and a place to commune with God. To commune with God in prayer and in the study of his word. Would you agree? In his light shall we see light until the mind and heart and soul are transformed into the image of his holiness. The truths of the Bible received will uplift mind and soul. If the word of God were appreciated as it should be, both young and old would possess an inward rectitude, a strength of principle that would enable them to resist temptation. Well, that sounds like the life of Jesus, doesn't it? From study of the word. And then we'll move to the seven-branch candlestick. Christ does not bid his followers strive to shine. He says, let your light shine. If you have received the grace of God and the light is in you, remove the obstructions and the Lord's glory will be revealed. 
You see, this statement makes sense if we believe in that seed principle. If Jesus' life is planted in me, I don't have to strive to shine. He's already in me, and he's the light of the world. I just need to let his light shine. And I let his light shine by taking away the obstacles that are unlike him. Does that make sense? He's the one in us that's transforming us into his own image there. Jesus is the light of the world. He's in you. Let his light shine then. Ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So letting your light shine is here being like doing what? Good works, right? So letting your light shine is to let it shine in the home and where you work. And you do that by doing things. It's an activity. Kind words, kind deeds, things that you can do. Let your light shine to show that you're doing the kinds of things Jesus would be doing if he had your job, if he had your position. Just let him shine through you in these different settings. And this is the last slide. I want you to just think about these two scriptures and how these two scriptures are only possible if something happens. Revelation 14, 12... Here's the patience of the saints. Here they are, right here. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Think about how amazing that verse is. And then also, Revelation 18, 1, the fourth angel's message. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with whose glory? With God's glory. How is this possible? How can you have, in the end of time, a group of people who keep all the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and who manifest the glory or character of God. How is that made possible? By just being forgiven? Here is finally a movement of people who don't just understand which day is the Sabbath. They don't, it's, it's more than understanding what happens when a person dies. This is a group of people who have cooperated with the Holy Spirit to allow Jesus, the seed, the promised seed, to become fully mature in them. Is right doctrine important? Absolutely. But right now, what God's waiting for, we have enough people who know what the Sabbath is, which day, right? What he's waiting for is to have a movement of people who get all the obstacles out of the way and allow the Jesus that's already in them to grow and to flourish and to reflect the image of Jesus fully. And so no matter what we've done or how many times, the seed of Jesus is more powerful than the seed of Adam. There will be a pull by the seed of Adam. But the seed of Jesus, which is already in you, is far more powerful, as the Holy Spirit's more powerful than anything inside of us. Okay? Before we have our closing prayer, our closing hymn is 493. 493.